the radio home of the 76ers. Into the labor first, windmill jam. Are you kidding me? 97.3 ESPN, WENJ, WENJ HD, Millville, Atlantic City. 97.3 ESPN presents the Sports Bash with Mike Gill. It's time for the MGPT Top 5 at 5 with Mike Gill and Pete Thompson. Now, live from inside the Matt Black Kia Studios, it's the MGPT Top 5 at 5. All right, MGPT Top 5 at 5. Here we go. It's our Top 5 NHL Coaches. This one should be fun today. By the way, Durso seems to play along when we have the NHL coaches. Has he put up his list already? Oh, he has. Oh, wow. Yeah. Maybe I should just let him do my list. Not, uh, you not, want to just read his instead of mine? Not confident in your list, are yeah, you? Yeah, I just, uh, I mean, we were having this conversation. I said, you know, this one, like NHL coaches, to me, it's just, oh, you know, like I, I can put five guys in a hat and they have the same reaction. Like if I said, hey, you're one of my top five favorite coaches. Oh, you know, that's nice of you. I, I think you're not wrong with that's the, the cliche answers and that's what you get out of these coaches. But if, if you dive a little deeper, there is personality in there. So I, I got creative with mine. Okay. I, I got a little creative with mine. There's certain reasons and stuff that drew me to these particular coaches. So I'll, I'll start with that. I'm not the hockey guy that you guys are. Like I said to you, and now Lindy Ruff did not make my list, full disclosure. But Lindy Ruff is a coach that I just know off the top of my head for one reason. He looked like the Sabre. The Sabres were good when he was the coach, and he looked like he could have been a Sabre. Like, Lindy Ruff, you're the coach of the Sabres. He was perfect. He looked like he would be the Sabre. That's fair. That's no, the only you. reason why he stands out to me, that Lindy Ruff was the coach of the But he had a great run when they with those Buffalo teams. But I think PT uh, can lead this one off. Peter? Michael Hunter, I appreciate uh, the forum, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm down to do this. Uh, I don't have Lindy Ruff G. Do I even have him in my honorable mentions? Negative, Ghost Rider. The pattern is full. He didn't even make it in my honorable mentions, but yeah, he's a lifer. He's a hockey guy. I agree with what Hunter's saying too. Like, yes, uh, typically the coaches give you the cliche answers, and you don't hear much, and uh, therefore maybe uh, have a hard time ascertaining who you think is your favorite. But uh, here we go. I mean, here's a guy who does not speak in cliches. My number five uh, is John Tortorella. I mean, I'm a Philly guy, so I like the passion and fire out of my coach, and no one exemplifies that more than Torts. Ask anybody in the New York media, the Tampa Bay media, even the Vancouver media way back in the day, if John Tortorella has lost any of his fire or passion for the game, his meltdowns afterwards have become the stuff of YouTube legend. He did lead Tampa to the 2004 Stanley Cup, so he does have a title, first American-born NHL coach to win 500 wins and twice won the Jack Adams Award as the top coach, and he is not afraid to tell you what he's thinking, criticizes his own players, anyone else that has him agitated. I mean, sometimes that heat gets turned toward the officials, sometimes he gets fined, sometimes it's the media. You're never at a loss wondering what Torts is thinking, and here's something I didn't know until I looked it up. I love researching for these segments. East Coast Hockey League founders Henry Brabham and Bill Coffey credit Torts with coming up with the name for the league, the ECHL, well-known today. But in 1987, when they were forming it, they didn't have a name yet. It was Torts who suggested How about East Coast Hockey League, ECHL, rings off the tongue. John Tortorella, my number five favorite NHL coach of all time. Love it, PT. Also mine, Torty. Gotta love some Torty. 
My buddy's playing with the Columbus Blue Jackets right now under Torchy, and this guy is something else. He will make you work. Those training camps, uh, they're not easy. I mean, he's definitely uh, a hard-nosed guy, no doubt about it. But you're right, PT. You're going to know what Torchy is thinking. He's not afraid to say anything to the media. He's not afraid to speak his mind. He is tough. He's that guy that I think all the get-off-my-lawn people are all about still. he, You know that you got to work your ass off for this guy. He's not going to baby you. He's not going to treat you like you're a child. You have to give 3,000% for Tortorella. And, um, yeah, I think he did a great job last year with this team. The Columbus Blue Jackets beat the Tampa Bay Lightning in the first round and swept them, which was insane to see Tortorella, my number five. Now, I like Tortorella's uh, press conferences. Of the hockey coaches, he's a guy that, too, you could say, all right, I can name John Tortorella. I know him, although he didn't make my five. And I'll, you'll see why, uh, you know, a guy like that didn't make my five just because of some of the uh, things and in, in the ways that I kind of went. But my number five, I went a little outside the box on this one, gents. I start with Herb Brooks. While he's not known for his NHL acumen as a head coach, he did coach the Rangers, uh, Minnesota, had a run with the Devils, and then, by the way, uh, coached the Pittsburgh Penguins as well. He is the coach of USA Hockey 1980s team. So that's what he makes my list more for. But he was an NHL coach, not a very successful NHL coach. Made the playoffs a bunch of times, uh, you know, for his coaching career. But uh, ultimately, when you look at him, you remember Herb Brooks as Miracle. Do you believe in miracles? So that story, that whole thing, uh, the movie, just his style, his camp, the way that he approached the whole um, Olympics with that team. Uh, what a fascinating story. What a fascinating guy. Um, and Kurt Russell played him, by the way. Uh, her books made my list as number five. Yeah, he's more known as USA Hockey, but he did have a couple of chances to be an NHL head coach. And uh, yeah, he wasn't awful, but uh, that's not what he was known for. Truly one of the great honors of my life, Mike Gill, to meet her books not once, but twice when he came to Omaha scouting for the Penguins. He was in a scouting role at that point. You know, hockey people never really get fired. They just move on to some other role in the organization more times than not. And, uh, yeah, I had him at the top of my honorable mentions. He's literally number one at my honorable mentions. But I got to meet the guy. He got to see some of the technology I was using at the time. And uh, uh, I just consider that an honor. You know, anytime I see the Miracle movie on, I'm like, yep, met that guy. Love him. He's in my honorable mentions. My number four, though, uh, you, you remember how I said John Tortorella had the passion in the fire. Uh, come on, Lavi. I mean, Lavi, Peter Laviolette had it, and he was the coach of my team. I mean, I loved Peter Laviolette. And when he'd say, you know, we have to come out with more jam, like that was his catchphrase. He acknowledged it himself. He made a video for the fan appreciation game thanking the Flyers fans are bringing more jam than any other city in sports, and everybody went nuts. And then we all remember Game 6 of the Eastern Conference quarterfinals against the Penguins in the playoffs when the Flyers gave away the shirts. They gave away orange shirts with the caricature of an angry lobby and the phrase, time for some jam. I mean, come on. I thought his style fit that Flyers club perfectly, especially in 2010. He's any ability to call that timeout at the right time to settle the guys down. Of course, he went 0-3 in 2013. You're out of here. Fired, replaced by Craig Berube, who's since gone on to win a cup himself, by the way. But Peter Laviolette, what he brings to the table, that's my kind of guy behind the bench. He did win a Stanley Cup with Carolina in 06. 
But you can tell his kind of coaching tends to wear the players out, too, because the Islanders, Carolina, Philly, Nashville, fired, 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 fired. I mean, put it this way, like Greg Popovich yesterday, who's taken over as the head coach for USNA men's basketball, Lavi currently the head coach for U.S. men's hockey. That is until another NHL team gives him a ring and says, we need your unique blend of anger and motivation, please. Peter Laviolette, I love the guy. Took a picture with him once. I think you knew that, Mike. I think I texted you that picture. Uh, That's my number four favorite NHL coach of all time. PT, I think you're looking at my list because I also have Lavi at number four. And I think it's important that you mentioned the fact that his style definitely does wear people out. It's it's hard nose as well, but after a couple years, a couple seasons, I think the players start going, all right, Lobby, let's calm it down a little bit. But that play with some jam, that line, I think there's another word in there that we're not allowed to say. That line <laughs> was tremendous, and it, and it was literally what had that team pretty much rolling. I think I even might have... The, that t-shirt you're talking about. I got a bunch of all the Flyers t-shirts, those big oversized ones. When I was little, they were oversized. Now, I can barely fit in them anymore, which is a little upsetting. But um, but yeah, Laviolette for me, I hope that he continues to be able to do what he can do in Nashville. I mean, they, they do have a really solid team. They were close to winning the Stanley Cup at one point, but they did not get to do it. It's one hell of a city and one hell of an atmosphere. I just wonder how much longer he has in Nashville until that message runs dry because he has been there for about five five years now or maybe even six at this point. Uh, he's out. Uh, he's already out. Go on. Yeah. Oh, that is right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that is correct. He's he is out. out. I knew that. Yeah, he was out this this season, wasn't it? Was That's it this correct. year? Yeah, it was this year. There's so much going it, it on in the sports world, I forgot that even happened. Well, this season's still going on. Yeah, it is. Technically. <laughs> You're right. Look at all this. I don't even know where I am anymore. Uh, number four, uh, he's a current coach, and uh, you almost forget about this guy because um, he's in Tampa. But John Cooper, not the Ohio State coach, but the head coach who's been there, by mm-hmm. the way. You forget John Cooper has been the head coach of the Tampa Bay Lightning since the 2012-2013 and 2013 season in a league that changes coaches probably every 45 minutes. Uh, he has been there since 2012. And Cooper, you know, what I like about I just have always kind of been like, I like I've been to Lightning games before when I go down to Clearwater. I love the atmosphere down there. It's so cool going to a game with like the palm trees. You're wearing shorts and a t-shirt at a hockey game down there. But their style of play is always so fun. Uh, and Cooper's been the head coach there. They lost in the Stanley Cup Finals. They won the President's uh, Trophy last year. They've been first in the Atlantic. I mean, they've been first or second in uh, his tenure five times. They've been to the Stanley Cup Finals, the Conference Finals twice. I mean, the, the team is right on the precipice. Uh, but he is a right now, um, I, I got to imagine. I don't know this off the top of my head. You guys might know. He's got to be maybe the longest tenured guy with the same team. He's been there since 2012. That doesn't happen anymore. 62 wins last year, uh, and Cooper's style. I just love the style that the Lightning play. I mean, I saw them, the one game I went to this year, the Flyers played the Lightning. Their style of play is so much fun. They always have, you know, some pretty high-profile players, and John Cooper gets my vote as a current coach, and he's number four. That's a nice pull from left field on a good coach on a good team. I applaud your effort there, Mike. Well, I like Tampa Bay because I go to a lot of games down there, PT. I gave them a little bit of credit for that because I I try to dip into a lightning game when I go to Philly spring training. Well, my uh, number three coach, and maybe Hunter and I will diversify on our list here, is uh, 
is continuing my theory of coaches that uh, are successful yet piss off the players, and nobody did that more than Mike Keenan. You knew he was going to make my list somewhere. 84 to 2009, he was behind an NHL bench somewhere, and iron Mike Keenan, I mean, let's start with this. Most of his Flyers players hated him. I mean, he was named Iron Mike for a reason. Stern, disciplined, he was okay with you hating him as long as you played for him and gave him the effort he expected. And as much as I hated to see the arch-rival Rangers win the Cup in 94, I was slightly okay with the fact that Mike Keenan got one finally because he'd come close so many times before the Flyers. He is not a warm and fuzzy guy. I mean, that doesn't fit in his description. As a result, his inability to maintain working relationships with players and team organizations has often led him to bounce from place to place. Just look through the resume. It's fired from Philly just a year after leading to the 87 Cup Finals. Well, he and Jay Snyder didn't get it along. Fired from Chicago after taking them to the 92 Cup Finals. First, it was he was GM only because Bill Wirtz didn't want to lose Daryl Sutter as a coach, and then he lost a power struggle with this guy, Bob Pulford, who was the senior VP. But getting fired in Chicago led him to the Rangers. And, of course, he won the cup there and then got uh, fed up with dealing with Neil Smith. Who can't get along with Neil Smith? We've had him guest on the show. He's great, GM Neil Smith, and he claimed he was a violation of his contract, so really it was just an excuse to get away from Neil Smith. St. Louis, Vancouver, he had issues with his players. Brett Hole, Trevor Linden, the Stars. I mean, if you're going you're gonna to go after somebody, you're going after the Stars. The Blues were playing the Sabres one time, and Dale Horacek's uh, dying grandmother came to see him play one last time. She came from Canada over to Buffalo to see him play. What does Keenan do? He benches Ducky for the game, and an unhappy captain, Brett Hull, screams at Iron Mike, who then strips Brett Hull's captaincy. I mean, just childish sometimes. And had trouble in Florida, too. But, I mean, the guy can flat-out coach. He can motivate. If you liked Herb Brooks, which I know you do, Gil, because you have him on your list, in that movie Miracle, if you're all hating the coach, at least you're all together. The last thing I'll say about Keenan about his goaltenders. I mean, he would pull or switch goaltenders at any time, sometimes multiple times in a period. 87 playoffs, he pulled Ron Hextall and Chico Resch five times total in one stinking game. The fifth time, of course, was uh, calculated. It was to gain a man advantage in the last minute of play. But, I mean, that's, you know, he was known for that, too. Uh, Mike Keenan, that's my number three favorite NHL coach of all time. Hey, PT, you know we're on a time limit here. Yeah, whatever. All right. My number three, Barry Trotz. Oh, Trotz is a great-looking dude. Uh, You think so? (laughs) Uh, Barry Trotz, he had one hell of a run in Nashville, but when he got to Washington, he obviously won the Stanley Cup there. And Then after he won the Stanley Cup, it was on to the New York Islanders, which was very interesting. But I think the reason why I like Barry Trotz for number three on my list specifically is because when you dive deeper into his, his personal story and things off the ice, I know Road to the Winter Classic definitely highlighted this a bit. The family side of him and what he has to do, he has um, one of his sons has a disability that he has to take care of him. And, and his personal side to his story is just so tremendous. And the way that he balances that with the stuff that happens on the ice as well. And to be so good at it on top of what he has to do at home too is really what kind of connected me with Barry Trotz to have him third on my list. So for me, it's Barry Trotz. A great, great, great Stanley Cup run with the Washington Capitals. Got Alexander Ovechkin that cup. And now he's going to try and do it with the New York Islanders, who are very, very stacked as well. One of my honorable mentions made the list just because he's a tremendous-looking man. I'll throw that out for a little tease. 
My number three, though, not a great coach, although he had success. I love his personality. He's been a guest on the show many a times, and that's Barry Melrose. Okay, he lost. This guy came out. He was a young kid as the coach of the L.A. Kings, and it was like this brash kid. He comes in, and he takes him to the Stanley Cup Finals, and you're like, dude, this guy's destined for stardom as a head coach. The next year, he missed the playoffs. The next year, he was fired. He went into broadcasting, and then... Over 10 years later, he gets hired by the Tampa Bay Lightning and lasted 16 games. That's the kind of story that I like, but nothing more than that. He responds to our text messages all the time. He's got a tremendous mullet, and he's a fantastic guest. So, as I told you, my list has a little bit of pizzazz, a little bit of this and that. He made it to a Stanley Cup Finals as a head coach, flamed out. Took a job 15 years later and got fired in 16 games. That's the most impressive resume I think I've ever heard. Barry Melrose, number three. I do love that he responds to our text messages. I, I will give you that. And by the way, I felt I could go a little longer because I thought yours would be a little shorter given the subject matter, Gil. But uh, excuse me. Uh, my number two is Glenn Sather, uh, currently the senior advisor and alternate governor for the Rangers. But, I mean, this guy's the head coach of the Edmonton Oilers. The, the four Stanley Cups there with the Oilers, 84, 85, uh, 87. And 88 was the you know, without a guy named Gretzky, by the way. And look at his history. He was the player coach of the WHA Oilers in 77. Slats then spent the next 22 years as the coach, then the coach slash GM, and then the Oilers dynasty struggled. Players uh, rose to prominence there, and then Edmonton, quite frankly, couldn't afford to keep him. That Peter Pocklington was too cheap. Sather then left for New York. He had decent success there as president and GM. Uh, guys like Henrik Lundqvist, Brandon Dubinsky, Ryan Callian, Mark Stahl, etc., etc. All you need to know, I think this story is the best, though, about Slats. In 78, then-owner Peter Pocklington came to him and said, should I go after this guy, Gretzky? And Sather said, whatever you have to do, go get him. And in 78, I mean, this hockey expert, Howie Meeker, I mean, many people said Gretzky was too small. He was never going to make it. And Sather pushed for him. So much so that when the Oilers got Gretzky, Sather had Gretzky live with him and his family. That was a smart decision. Glenn Sather, my number two favorite NHL head coach of all time. My number two is uh, Ken Hitchcock. Yeah. Ah, yeah, yeah, got that Stanley Cup with the Dallas Stars. That was back in the 98-99 season. That's the only Stanley Cup he has ever hoisted. But he's just one of those coaches where, for the most part, wherever he goes, that team is having success, and that team is making the playoffs. There were obviously some years that were not as good, and then he left. Um, he started in Dallas, and then he went to Philadelphia, Columbus, St. Louis, Dallas, Edmonton. So he's been around a bit, and... The thing I would say with him is it kind of has an Andy Reid feel to him for some reason. I don't know why. I just feel as if he's like an Andy Reid type coach. Where he goes, people succeed. Teams succeed. And he has that kind of vibe. I don't know if uh, the looks has anything to do with that. I kind of see a little bit of, I don't know. I don't know what it is. But I think Ken Hitchcock, I think Andy Reid. That could be nuts of me. Similar. Okay. Yeah. You do feel Although that he's vibe? he's bounced around a lot. He's like Larry Brown. Right, but, He's been but all over the place, that but guy. success, though. Yes. Success, and that's uh, the main thing 
Number two on my list. Two for me. I mean, growing up, I was a big hockey fan, and when I first got into the sport, Mike Keenan was the coach of the Flyers. I remember sitting in my basement as a young kid watching the Stanley Cup Finals with my uncle as the Flyers lose to the Edmonton Oilers, but the fiery guy behind the bench. I like these guys with personality, and Keenan had it. A lot of controversy around him. He, too, uh, was like Larry Brown. I mean, heck, I think he was in Chicago, the Rangers, the Blues, Vancouver, Boston, Florida, Calgary. Uh, that's a heck of a resume there. Uh, he even went to Parts Unknown. I think he was in the KHL for a while. Uh, but his biggest, you know, run was with those Flyers team, and they lost in the Stanley Cup final. I take that back. He won a Stanley Cup, too, by the way, with the Rangers. But uh, what I remember was when I was a kid, I saw the Flyers playing in the Stanley Cup in 87. Now, of course, they didn't win. Uh, but I thought it was the coolest thing watching them play those games against Wayne Gretzky, Mark Messier, and I thought Keenan, um, you know, after that year, they won the division, or they were second in the division, and then he was gone. He just rubbed people so the wrong way. Went to Chicago, lost in the Stanley Cup final there. Then he went to the Rangers, uh, lasted one year, won the Stanley Cup, got out, went to St. Louis, got fired, Vancouver got fired, and then it kind of went downhill for him after that. But I'll never forget as a young kid watching that 87 Flyers team with Mike Keenan behind the bench. A prickly man, PT, a prickly man. Although you guys have a similar hairdo. Uh, not right now. My hair's long. I, I could almost do the comb over right now. I'm telling you, I could go back to front. It'd be. Although I'm getting a haircut tomorrow. I can't wait. All right, that's not important. What's important is my number one, and that's Scotty Bowman. I mean, how can you not have this guy number one? It seems like every year when the Stanley Cup was awarded, he was either there as the head coach or somehow involved as the coach. He's won a record nine Stanley Cup championships. That's five with the Canadians, one with the Penguins, three with the Red Wings. He's also won five more cups in different teams' front office. I mean, my memory of St uh, Scotty Bowman is when Detroit won it the last time in 2002. I remember the ceremony was going on, and, you know, I think uh, the players are skating around with a cup and whatnot. And he disappeared back into the dressing room to change out of his suit and get into skates. Because he wanted to be just like his guys. You know, he wanted to put some skates on. I mean, and that, that's the thing. We always see him in the suit behind the bench, but Scotty Bowman wanted to be with his boys. This was maybe his last time ever. I mean, the guy's record is unbelievable. Holds the league record or the record for most wins in league history 1,248. Uh, second all time behind Jean Bellevue for Stanley Cup wins. He, of course, Bellevue will never be caught. He won 17 times. It's ridiculous. But Scotty Bowman and his lineage stand as the Blackhawks GM right now. Scotty's still involved, senior advisor. I mean, the guy is one of the greatest minds and the greatest coaches in NHL history. Scotty Bowman, my number one. My number one, I was hoping, would be a Philadelphia Flyer this past year, and that's Joel Quenville. We remember him from back in 2000. Great stash. Great stash. I mean, uh, great stash might not even be doing it justice. But what he did in Chicago to win those Stanley Cups, that was super impressive. And right now he's in Florida kicking back with some nice weather. And that's probably why he did not choose the Philadelphia Flyers. But earlier in his career, he was with St. Louis. Then he went to Colorado for a bit. But Chicago was where he made his entire career. I mean, the Stanley Cups were unbelievable. That entire run, it felt like year after year after year that Chicago team was busting up all over the league. Joel Quenville, my number one. And now that we have Elaine Vigneault, I'm not mad about it, but I still think that Joel Quenville is just a little bit better. 
Uh, number one for me, it's Peter Laviolette. And uh, the reason I go that route, he's not the best. This isn't the best. These are your favorites. And I love that 2010 run was one of the most fun uh, as a hockey fan you ever had. I mean, they had the series against Boston. They took you all the way to the Stanley Cup. It was an up-and-down season. It took you to the last game. LaViolette, always a great quote, nice guy, uh, but, you know, rub people the wrong way. But he had that perfect blend personality. But for that year, uh, 2010 is what gets him there. Now, he had a great career, by the way. He's not some stiff of a coach uh, that just stunk it up. He won a Stanley Cup, by the way, with Carolina. He's lost in the Stanley Cup Finals with Nashville. He lost in the Stanley Cup Finals with the Flyers. He did win a Cup uh, previous to that, so it's not like he's a loser by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, Stanley Cup, 10 playoff appearances, but he gave me what was probably my favorite hockey season. You know, he was the head coach of the team. That was my – the readers in Keenan – was when I was young enough, I saw the Flyers in the Stanley Cup. He was the coach. When I was old enough to recognize, Laviolette was the coach. And that was the most fun. That summer was so much fun every single night. The way that it went, Peter Laviolette, I thank him for that fun that I had. And I hope uh, that we get back there with Elaine Vigneault. But uh, Peter Laviolette, number one, he's a quote. He was a nice man. He came on the show a lot as well. He was a good interview. Yeah, my brother and sister-in-law got to sit next to Kristen, his wife, on a couple of the road games in that series. And I think they also met her at the Fenway, you know, the when they played in Boston for the outdoor game. So uh, he's a great family, great guy. You know, I'm a big Laviolette fan. So I'm I'm okay with that, Mike Gill. Uh, honorable mentions, I had Herb Brooks, like you, Mike Gill, in my honorable mentions. I had Ken Hitchcock that Hunter mentioned. I had Fred Shiro, Pat Burns, and Pat Quinn. People tend to overlook Pat Burns, the late Pat Burns, the former Montreal policeman, and Pat Quinn had his hand in so many good hockey teams. Bruce Boudreau, Mark Crawford, Lou Lamorello, and Roger Nielsen. Roger Nielsen was innovative. Uh, he was like Herb Brooks. He loved looking at videotape or scheming up new ways, and Roger Nielsen had a great impact on the Flyers. So those are my honorable mentions. I have Rick Tockett, Bryn Moore, Bruce Cassidy, who's doing a good job right now, David Quinn with the uh, Rangers, and then Plenty, that's my boy. I would have put this guy on my list if news did not break over the last year, but Mike Babcock would have made my list, but apparently this guy is, uh, whew, he's nuts. Like, bad nuts. <laughs> yeah, like, it's, it is, uh, it, it totally ruined everything any hockey fan probably would think of. Mike Babcock. Yeah, I put Tortorella, Hitchcock. Bruce Boudreaux is the guy I was talking about who's a handsome man. I mean, he's just a great-looking guy. Bruce Boudreaux is just a fantastic look. He is the perfect-looking hockey coach. If you put hockey coach, you think Bruce Boudreaux, and he would be the guy. Uh, you got to have – there's no list you can have that's a hockey list without a Jacques. And Jacques Lemire would be on both benches, and you two idiots didn't put him on there. So Jacques Lemire gets the honorable mention because how do you not have a coach named Jacques on your list of your favorite – NHL. Well, because I I value more than looks and names. Well, Boudreaux right. gets it for the looks, and Jacques Lemire gets it for the names. Boudreaux? Really? So it's the, so the guy that put the house at number five. Keep talking. <laughs> um, PT, it's your favorites. It's not your best. It's your favorites. Once you figure out the rules of these things, your list might be better, PT. Keep trying. <laughs> All right, boys. What's tomorrow? College. That's right. We already told that you this, be, but you didn't pay attention. That ought to be fun. All right, no, I was trying to set you up, you jerk. PT, have a good night. See ya. You think that was written on the paper? Set Gill and Broads up? No. Coming up on the other side, stick around. Don Van Nata on 
the decision. LeBron James' decision. They're doing a whole feature on this, the backstory of it. We'll get a preview of it coming up next. Talk radio show on 97.3 ESPN-FM. Sunday night, it's a backstory. I saw the preview for this this afternoon, and I was like, wow, uh, this is going to be epic. And then I was lucky enough to get an email asking me, hey, did you want to talk to uh, Dan Vinata Jr.? And I said, uh, absolutely. Uh, backstory goes into the backstory of LeBron James' decision from 10 years ago. It's this Sunday night, Backstory. And Don Van Nata is our guest. He's the host and the executive producer. It's a new ESPN series. You know his work from ESPN and Outside the Lines. And uh, he is kind enough to join us now here on the Boardwalk Honda Hotline. Don, welcome. Thank you. How are you guys doing today? We're doing great, man. We're excited uh, for the series, and we're excited for this particular uh, episode. You know, it's funny. I just happened to be sitting here in the studio, and they were running a preview, and I was like, man, this is uh, riveting just watching the preview of it. You know, you're sitting down and you're talking about, um, you know, this, uh, this infamous moment. And it's almost like people are like, what do you mean infamous? You know, like it's still looked at in such a polarizing regard today about LeBron's, uh, quote unquote decision. Yeah, that's exactly right. It was because it was just the way it was executed, right? That's what we remember. We remember it was just a bad hour of TV. LeBron looked so uncomfortable. It was so awkward. Jim Gray, the host, asked 23 questions before he asked the question, what's your decision? You know, he said, yeah, where's the powder? He said, are you a nail biter? Just these comical questions. And, you know, so we all felt watching it like, well, this is just, bad television but 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 it was also the fact that he turned his back on his hometown and and in the way he did it in such a in such a high profile way 10 million people watched 15 minutes after lebron said i'm taking my town to south beach of course that's a big part of it too the way he said it uh his jerseys were being burned in cleveland and and when lebron was shown that that night uh by mike wilbon back in espn studios lebron said well i can't be concerned with that so it was just so much of a shrug. And, and so what we tried to do with this episode is go back and see the backstory of why the show was done, how it was put together, whose idea was it, and then also the legacy of the show looking back 10 years from now. And a lot of stuff, you know, we, we didn't realize it that night, but it was the launching pad for a lot of different things, player empowerment, the building of super teams, and LeBron being a storyteller. Uh, you know, he's an executive producer now. He's got media companies. It was just announced today, $100 million dollars has been raised for a media, a new media company that LeBron and his business partner, Maverick Carter, uh, are putting together. And, you know, our reporting shows that all began that night at the Boys and Girls Club in Greenwich. Uh, the interesting part about this I'd like to hear is, what was the league's reaction to this? I mean, at the time, you mentioned it really, you know, started these super teams and gave the players power. When David Stern was the commissioner at that time, was he supportive of this? Like, hey, LeBron, it's your decision. You go and do what you want. Or were they like, eh, I don't know that I like this idea. David Stern hated the idea. He didn't just hate the idea. He tried to get the show killed. <laughs> he called John Skipper at ESPN. We interviewed John Skipper, uh, a top ESPN executive, the former president. Uh, of ESPN, and Stern called him in the days leading up to it and said, please don't do this. And in my interview with Skipper on camera for Sunday Night's Backstory, Skipper said the reason Stern didn't like it is because one player was getting too large a platform and too much power. 
And, and that's what bothered Stern. He, he was sort of a visionary to know that this was going to trigger uh, what we've seen in recent years where, you know, players, super teams are being built. Players are leaving teams without free agency. They're just, they're just uh, like Anthony Davis. They're just being traded and, and, the agents are putting together these super teams. And I think Stern envisioned that if this happens, you know, we could end up where we are today. Sunday night, 9 o'clock, uh, backstory on LeBron, the decision. Sunday night, 9 o'clock, ESPN, ahead of the 10-year anniversary of LeBron's decision. Was this LeBron's idea? I mean, was this something that LeBron said, you know what, I really want to do, uh, I want to go on television and make my announcement in this fashion? It was not LeBron's idea. That's one of the really interesting things that we found out. It wasn't LeBron's idea. It wasn't any uh, the idea of anybody around him, Maverick Carter or Rich Paul, who's now his agent. It wasn't ESPN's idea. It wasn't Jim Gray's idea, although Jim has said it was his idea. It turned out it was the idea of a guy named Drew. <laughs> I don't know his last name. A guy named Drew in Columbus, Ohio, in November of 2009, wrote an email to Bill Simmons <laughs> The Bill Simmons' mailbag column and said, LeBron should announce his free agency decision live on ABC. Simmons took the idea and pitched it to ESPN executives, pitched it to Maverick Carter, to Leon Rose, LeBron's agent, in February over the All-Star weekend that year in Dallas. There was all sorts of discussions about it for months. And it wasn't until in June that Maverick Carter, uh, Leon Rose, uh, and, uh, and Jim Gray were at the NBA Finals in uh, in L.A. that they had this discussion, and it really took off. And once Ari Emanuel got involved, the Hollywood agent, uh, it was then brought to ESPN and Greenlit. So it's a fascinating sort of origin story that nobody knew before uh, we, we did our reporting on this episode. Do you think that LeBron sees this as part of his journey, or do you think that there's a little bit of regret in there as well? Well, certainly at the time, uh, there was a lot of regret. Uh, you know, you could see it in the chair. He's uncomfortable. It's almost as if he knows as he's sitting there, this is not a good thing with so many people watching me to turn my back on, you know, my hometown. Um, he just looks so reluctant. And, you know, he was reluctant in the days leading up to it. Um, and he had people on his team warning him that it's, this had the potential to backfire. Leon Rose, the agent, soured on the idea and uh, was advising people this could backfire. And LeBron, as was World Wide West, you know, LeBron's agent at the, uh, advisor at the time was also saying this could, this could be a bad thing. LeBron expressed regret for the decision a few months after it happened in 2010. Uh, he said he probably would have done it differently. And certainly the way he changed teams, you know, when he went back to Cleveland after four years in Miami where he won two titles for the Heat, you know, then he did an as-told-to essay for Sports Illustrated where he could very – you know, carefully control that narrative. And then when he went to L.A. in 2018, it was just a one-page statement put out by Clutch Sports by his, uh, by his agent. So he certainly learned his lesson that way. I think, though, that the guys around him, particularly Maverick Carter, see it as, you know, sort of a teaching moment for them. It was the first time they were producers. It was badly executed, but they learned a lot of lessons. And now they've got, you know, media companies uninterrupted, Spring Hill Entertainment, uh, they're, you know, LeBron's the executive producer of all these shows that all these networks are vying for. So they got a taste for it, even though it didn't go well. But now they're really, really good at it. Uh, it is Sunday night, nine o'clock. Uh, backstory: The decision. Uh, Dan Von Nata, Don Von Nata Jr. is with us, uh, the host and executive producer of the show, which sounds like it's going to be a tremendous uh, backstory on this one. And you know, 
the one question I guess I would have on this something like this was, correct me if I'm wrong, the viewership for this was tremendous for ESPN to not try to do something like this again. Yes, so the, the one-hour decision broadcast was uh, the most watched non-live event in the history of ESPN. Ten million people, an average of 10 million people watched that hour. At 9.28 p.m. Eastern, when LeBron said, I'm taking my talents to South Beach, 13 million people were tuned in. But the thing that a lot of people forget, and we go into this in the show as well on Sunday night, is that hour didn't belong to ESPN. ESPN donated that hour for free to LeBron James and Maverick Carter. They had sponsors, Nike, Coca-Cola, the University of Phoenix. The money from those sponsors went to the Boys and Girls Club of America, more than $2 million. So ESPN didn't even benefit financially from the biggest audience in its history for a non-live event. And so we go into all of that, and I asked Skipper what the rationale was for doing that, and he gives some pretty uh, compelling reasons on the show. Now, did you get a chance to uh, kind of – first off, did you get a chance to talk to LeBron about what he was like that day? I mean, is he a part of this to kind of like the preparation that went into it for him? Was he like you know, pacing back and forth? Uh, what was he like – in the hours leading up to this? Well, I should tell you guys that LeBron declined to, to comment for, for the episode. He would not sit down with me. Two years ago for a show that LeBron did called, uh, for ESPN Plus called More Than an Athlete, uh, he sat down with Maverick Carter, Rich Paul, and his chief of staff, Randy Mims. They sat around on couches. There was no journalist there. They just discussed amongst themselves the decision. And LeBron did talk about the backlash that occurred and how much it bothered him when he finally got to Miami that night and he realized how bad it all was and that Dan Gilbert letter. Remember the Comic Sans letter that the owner of the Cavaliers put out that yeah. night ripping LeBron? And so he does, he talks about it himself. So when I asked for him to sit down with us and Maverick Carter, they said they declined and they, you know, they feel they've already done it. Um, but I did, through my own reporting, find out some interesting uh, stuff about the run-up to it. LeBron did very little preparation for the interview. Um, he flew that day from his basketball camp in Akron, sponsored by Nike, and he didn't arrive in Greenwich until about 6 o'clock, so just a few hours before the show began. He went to a house in Greenwich, an agent's house that was kind of a green room for the decision, and he spent most of his time recording uh, promos for that night with those sponsors and sort of glad handing with the corporate sponsors that were there. Uh, Jim Gray was there. Kanye West was there. LeBron had dinner with Kanye West that night. Kanye was in attendance at the decision. And so he didn't, LeBron had no idea how many questions Jim Gray was going to ask. I had people around him tell me that he felt it was just going to be some small talk and that he was going to be asked to deliver his decision. And, uh, and, and so despite LeBron and his, his camp not talking with us, we did talk to quite a few people around him and got a good sense of uh, what that day was like. Out of everyone that you interviewed, was there something that was eye-popping or surprising to hear? This whole thing. Well, that's a good question. I, I, I definitely think that the Skipper interview, uh, the former president of ESPN, uh, there's a lot of revealing stuff there. For instance, I asked him, did LeBron use ESPN? Or did ESPN use LeBron? And he kind of smiled and said it was mutual use. Uh, he said LeBron used ESPN to get a platform. They got 
They asked for an hour of free time, and they got it, and that showed the kind of power LeBron wielded in 2010, uh, which was a good lesson for him going forward. And ESPN used LeBron in the sense of, as Skipper puts it, they were the center of the universe that night. If you wanted to find out where LeBron was going, remember there were six teams vying for him in free agency that summer. You had to tune into ESPN, which is why they got the record audience they got. Do you have any idea how many people were in the room and how they how you were selected to get in that room? I'm mean, looking at the video now. It looks like a you know like the basketball gym where the boys and girls club. But it looks like there's a couple of rows. Were these just family members or there people like hand selected? How did they get in that room? It's it were kids that were basically high school kids and a little bit younger who uh, went to the boys and girls club in Greenwich. And so the organizers there, the people that run that club, uh, hand-selected. I mean, it was obviously a tough ticket, the kids that were there. And there was criticism, a lot of media criticism, obviously, about every aspect of the show. And we go into a a, a little bit of that uh, on Sunday night. And even the kids, the use of the kids as sort of a backdrop, uh, there was criticism. The kids were being used as props for this show. Uh, So, you know, people criticized LeBron's shirt. You know, they they (laughs) criticized they criticized everything about it. And, uh, you know, LeBron was roundly criticized. ESPN was. Uh, Jim Gray got a lot of criticism. Just anybody that was involved in it, you know, took a lot of heat when it was all over. Uh, the show is Backstory with Don Van Nata Jr. He's our guest. It's Sunday night, 9 o'clock, the 10-year anniversary of the decision. LeBron James, uh, a little look inside it. Make sure you watch this Sunday night, 9 o'clock. Backstory, the decision. Don, we appreciate the time. Thank you very much, guys. Uh, really ex- appreciate it. Yeah, excellent stuff. I look forward to it. I saw the preview today. They were running it on SportsCenter, and I was like, dude, I am locked into this. That uh, is a riveting story, man. Oh, I can't wait. I, I can't wait. I'm thinking about setting the DVR. You know me with the DVR. I got all these things to watch. That's you watch skip, that's, it live. Oh, that's going over. Well, it depends. I got a bit. Dude, I move into my my house on that's Tuesday. True. That's true. All right, we got the file on the other side. Brought to you by Maplet Kia. They want to get you approved. Fire up the grill. Summer's here. And it's as close as your own backyard. The Home Depot. How doers get more done. You ready for competition? It's time for five questions. Three game and just man out of five. Number five will always love you. I can dig it, baby. Five questions wrapping up the show. That was great. Don Van Nata Jr., great investigative, three-time Pulitzer Prize winner. Wow. That's better than you. Absolutely it is. I can't even get my hockey equipment out of my container without it being soaked. You know what? Rained really hard today. Yeah, it's probably soaked again. But anyway, let's do the five here. And the fact that we were talking to Miami Heat, this is perfect. Dwayne Wade's prime. How do you feel about Dwayne Wade's prime? What kind question is that? Well, I don't think it gets appreciated enough. I don't think Dwayne Wade gets appreciated enough. I think Dwayne Wade's uh, all-time great. I agree, but I don't think that he gets talked about. Well, I mean, he, he's not like Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant. Like, there, he's like the next step down. I would agree with you, but I don't think he gets talked about enough to be that next tier down of the greats of LeBron, MJ, and, and Kobe. Yeah, well, you know what's interesting? His story should be bigger, too. I mean, he was a guy from Marquette, which is not like, um, I mean, Marquette won a national championship back in the 70s. It's not like some basketball factory, though. It's not constantly putting NBA players you know, high-level guys. 
he was not, you know, that draft had LeBron. It had uh, big names in it. He was the fifth pick, so he wasn't like a donkey pick. But, I mean, he didn't think he was going to be a franchise player. He turned out to be a franchise player. Yeah, more than just that. I, I loved his style of game when, when it was his prime. I mean, he was just a great two-guard. I loved everything about it. Let's move on to a Dirk. Dirk. He wins that title, right? How is he viewed differently without it? If he did not win that title, is he still looked at the uh, same way? Yes, and I'll tell you why. Because he was the first European like big man to shoot the three at that size. And it was his style of play that made Dirk Dirk, because that made other seven-foot guys want to shoot threes. If he doesn't win the championship, he's still like this seven-foot guy that had like Porzingis want to shoot threes and other, you know, seven-foot guys. He made seven-foot perimeter play cool. No, I, I agree with you. Which I, I wish he never did. <laughs> so, Dirk, <laughs> screw you. <laughs> he, he definitely did change the game with or without the title. But I think the way that he is viewed without the title or with it definitely does change. But I agree with you that he changed the way that people played the game. And it, it has transformed into now Joel Embiid taking eight three-pointers. All right. I don't know where you stand when it comes to LeBron. Because I'm a stan. I'm a LeBron stan. And there are haters. Where do you fall on that line? I, I am not a huge LeBron guy. I wouldn't. I was never a hater, but I was hard on him. And my reasoning really was... I thought there was more greatness in there, and he was depriving us of it. That's fair. Now, do you root for him to win at this point, or do you no. do you root for him to lose, though? Or no. you just don't care? Don't care. Okay. All right, that's fine. Yeah, I, I'm not like a hater. I don't love LeBron. I'm not like, oh, my God, he's my favorite. I appreciate him, no question. I don't hate him. Uh, I was very hard on him, but I feel that... Me being hard is me being fair. I'm a very hard grader to get into a Hall of Fame. I think that's being fair. I don't think that means I hate you. Well, there's a lot of people who grew up in, in your time of the MJ, and, and they don't want LeBron to keep winning because that, that will take away from MJ being the GOAT. He's already lost. MJ never did. That doesn't take away. Oh, stop. If you think it's just about the loss, well, then I expect more out of you No, I'm that. saying, like, that whole argument of, like, comparing championships is, is kind of out because he's already lost multiple. Yeah, but see, you can't discredit you, like you can't rip LeBron. I'm not discrediting, for, not you, but I'm, I'm saying, saying he people. can't catch Michael because he's already got losses on his ledger. See, I, so you value the NBA Finals loss more than getting swept in the first round, and that's where I have the debate with the MJ stance of the world. You lose first round, that gets no no discussion. You lose in the finals and you get ripped for it. Yeah, we'll have to talk more about that another time because that's not what I'm saying. I know it's not you, but it's the conversation that's always brought up.